Well, <laughs> this is a really interesting story because the myth itself is sort of one you might not think about that much. But a new analysis of more than 2,000 skeletons buried in England between the 5th and 11th centuries suggests the country's early medieval rulers weren't the carnivorous, carnivorous gluttons that we might think they are, at least not in popular lore. What most people have, what people in that era have been eating has been fodder for humor <laughs> for quite a while, particularly those in the not royal classes, including this segment of horrible histories called Historical Masterchef. Here is the Saxon contestant from that era. Five eager chefs, five historical eras, but just one prize. Who will be crowned Historical Masterchef? I once ate a chocolate as big as my head. He did. Starving Saxon Edbert comes from a small village in Sussex and he's preparing some traditional peasant dishes. Fresh rolls. They look excellent. Oh! I think I cracked a tooth. These are rock hard, mate. Thing is, see, our crops aren't ready until August, so food's in very short supply. In fact, we've already run out of flour, haven't we? Yeah. Watch. See, I've had to improvise with those using ground up acorns, grasses, nettles and tree bark. Well, hopefully your main course is going to be more edible. That was the main course, he goes on to say. Uh, that's historical MasterChef. It's comedic. And that was the Saxon contestant basically poking fun at the fact that they didn't have any meat, uh, that essentially they relied on a lot of what was grown on the land. And even that wasn't particularly plentiful. But the popular myth was that the ruling class or the royals in the in back then ate differently, that they were forever having big feasts full of mutton and mead and so forth. It turns out, though, that they too pretty much subsisted on cereal and vegetable-based diets with large meat-heavy feasts reserved only for special occasions. Well, joining me now is the person who helped figure this out. Sam Leggett is a bioarchaeologist at the University of Edinburgh and co-author of the study that was published in Anglo-Saxon England. Sam Leggett, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I guess, where does the myth come from? Well, I mean... We think it really comes from the high Middle Ages and, you know, the Tudor times, you know, people like Henry VIII sitting down to a really meaty meal and people just assuming that's what everyone's done for, you know, centuries. Um, that's kind of where we think everyone gets it from. So where did, where was the genesis of the idea to go out and see if this was actually true or not? Well, I was analyzing bones from this period as part of my PhD um, and I was really interested in, in more sort of like change in diet over time and um, some slightly different questions. And it kind of all started when I gave a, a talk in progress sort of meeting um, where my co-author Tom was and he sort of went, that doesn't fit <laughs> with the historical <laughs> documents. What's, what's going on here? And so, um, yeah, these, these papers then, then came about after, you know, sort of a couple of years of us sitting down and nutting it all out and, talking it through. So how did you go about trying to figure out what, in fact, uh, people from all social classes in Anglo-Saxon England were, in fact, eating on a regular basis? So what I tried to do was look at uh, skeletons myself and then from pu other published studies uh, that have a range of different grave goods. So in the time sort of before Christianity really takes hold, people were buried with stuff, um, with things they'd need for the afterlife. Um, and some people had a lot of really cool, very wealthy sort of type of items, gold with garnets, you know, precious gems. And some people had almost nothing or 
absolutely nothing in their graves. So what I tried to do was get a range of people with all of the lots of shinies to basically nothing and compared what they were eating um, over the course of the sort of data we've got give, gives us about 10 years worth of diet in their lifetimes. Um, so, yeah. What did you, and what did you, you, what did you find ultimately? I ultimately found that there was no difference between different social classes or, or genders with diet. The, the differences are more sort of chronological and sort of regional, you know, you've got different regional cuisines, but um, ultimately, no matter how lowly you were versus how rich you were, you're eating pretty much the same thing. Because we did have this idea, I suppose, that every day was feast day for, for, the, for the royalty or for the, for the elite, yeah. and that every day was, every day was a bad day uh, for everyone else. Uh, but I guess what you found is that mostly they were all in the same boat most days. Exactly. You know, food's really seasonal. Um, you know, this is a time before supermarkets, a time before, you know, sort of getting to pick whatever you'd like to eat. It's just what you've got in your back garden um, and what's sort of around you to sort of forage. So um, if things were bad, it was bad for everybody. And if stuff was good, you shared it with the whole community um, at one of these sort of big feasts is like a celebration. Yeah. Uh, uh, tell me about the feasts, because I guess that's where a lot of the myth comes from, is from those feasts and the frequency of them or infrequency of them, really. Exactly. So we've got these documents from the period which <laughs> lay out really quite a lot of meat, um, you know, multiple um, cows and sheep and salmon and eels and butter and lots and lots of ale. Um, and it's always sort of been assumed that these were sort of food rent. So it's something that the royals would say, I want this. This is what I would like to eat. Um, give it to me, please. And that's how I'm going to, you know, stock my kitchen. Um, and everyone assumed that this is what they do and go around their whole kingdom and just sort of pick on <laughs> each sort of local lord and tell him that that's what they'd like to be served. Um, but what we found now is that maybe that wasn't that frequent. It was a very special <laughs> occasion. I suppose given the scarcity of stuff and the difficulty in both raising crops, the failure of those crops at times, the difficulty of, of raising animals, that really even those at the top of the pile, so to speak, couldn't really go around demanding everyone's stuff or everyone's food, really. Exactly. Like when you actually think about sort of exactly what you were saying, what that would actually mean, it, it does make sense. And that these animals were very precious um, had a lot of other utility, you know, they would pull your plow, they could give you um, milk and um, wool and things like that. So um, if if times are really hard, you might sort of go to that as a, you know, um, a backup, but really, yeah, you wouldn't want to, they're, li they're your literal cash cows. So, you know, they're a big investment. So you want to sort of keep them around. Um, so, yeah. Were you, were you surprised by the findings? I mean, I guess at first it, it was counterintuitive. As an archaeologist, I wasn't as surprised because we sort of often we're more used to kind of dealing with, um, you know, not the elites. And so I was kind of expecting that most people would, just, you know, be relatively boring, dietarily speaking. Um, but what was more interesting and exciting is just that there was no one that stood out. Usually you just get a couple of people who look really, really sort of interesting and special. And the fact that no one did um, it was was quite interesting. And I think what was more exciting was sort of when Tom came in um, as a historian and went, this just doesn't match up with any of the sort of historical records. Right. Um, this yeah. is Tom at, uh, at Cambridge, right? That you're co-author. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what, what were they? I mean, how did you determine what they were and weren't eating? 
archaeologically? Archaeologically. So um, what I do is I get bones from ancient skeletons and I analyse the chemicals in them. And that kind of is what sort of gives us um, an idea about what you're eating. Um, we can do this on, on modern people and people who are alive today. You can analyse your hair and get the same sort of results. Um, and what's quite interesting, it sort of tells you if people are eating things from a marine environment, so, you know, if they're eating a lot of seafood um, or if they're eating stuff that's more land-based and also how much sort of proportional protein they're eating. So are they looking very plant-based? Are they looking a bit more like an omnivore? People are eating a bit of both. Or are they looking a bit more like a carnivore and really meat-heavy? Um, so it's not a super specific technique, but it gives you an idea of roughly speaking how much protein and where that protein is coming from. And then you can compare that with the actual animals. And if somebody's looking isotopically, chemically, like a cow or a sheep, but you know it's a human, that means they're eating the same sort of stuff as those animals. And that's what we're finding here is a lot of these people are eating similar diets chemically. So plants like, like their livestock. Right. So, so essentially, I mean, I, I saw this mentioned in different articles written about it, and essentially, they were the original flexitarians, right? They <laughs> uh, mostly exactly, mostly yeah. some meat. Um, exactly. Yeah. What What did that What did that tell you? I mean, I, I guess really, what it boils down to is that myths need to be tested, and that's what you do, right? You test these myths. Uh, what do you think the importance of the findings are? I think it debunks a lot of, like you say, those myths that we have about this, the past and particularly the early medieval past being this very meat heavy feasting society. Um, that just, that was a really special thing. It's like us having, you know, Christmas, um, a big, a big blowout meal with everybody. Um, and we need to start thinking of the past as maybe not such a foreign place and that um, their food ways were very flexible, like you're saying, um, because the world was a bit uncertain and you had to be flexible in your diets to kind of deal with big famines um, and uncertainty of crops and things, you know. So that flexitarianism has, has a place with, with that type of environment. That we've always adapted, no matter the social class, always adapted somewhat to what was at hand. Right? That's that, that's exactly. it, is, it is fascinating. How about the reaction to it? I mean, it really has been covered everywhere. I saw an article in the New York Times. I saw an article in the Times of London, The Sun, which is a tabloid. Uh, what have you made yeah. of, of all the different pickups of this story and, and how everyone <laughs> has treated it? I mean, it's, it's been fantastic for everybody to have found that that interesting and exciting. You always kind of hope that your research has that reach. Um, I mean, I think the whole uh, the kings were vegetarian is, um, is an interesting angle to take because we've got very specific ideas about what makes a vegetarian, right? And that usually comes with a whole ethos that I don't think we can put onto, um, you know, the early medieval period. They, they weren't thinking like modern vegetarians, but um, it definitely sort of shows you that meat hasn't always been as big a part of, um, you know, our, our sort of diet story. <laughs> But, yeah, I, yeah. I, I saw one headline that Alfred the Great had become Alfred the Green. <laughs> was, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, what, I mean, uh, what, what application do you think it has? And you've mentioned it, but what application do you think it has to modern times and just the idea of history in general? Yeah, I mean, I think it allows us to draw um, sort of more easy comparisons between us and sort of our ancestors. You know, if we can work out the types of things they're reading how they're moving about the landscape, um, we can then sort of use that to think about um, our own food culture and maybe with climate change and things like that, how we can adapt and change and sort of show you that it's been done before 
these people had a really, you know, robust society. And so that that's okay. You know, having that flexibility and that seasonality in your diet has, you know, served them just as well as it can, you know, hopefully serve us today. And there's lots of applications for forensics and other things as well. Um, I was going to say perhaps also the importance of archaeology and history. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I think what I do <laughs> yes, um, yes. is, you know, interesting. And I, I hope that, yeah, people can see the utility for this for, for lots of different stuff um, to overturn our myths, but to also, yeah, inform us about more recent events as well as, you know, 1500 years ago that we're talking about in these papers. What's next? What's next? Um, we really want to sort of tackle the childhood diet aspect as well. Have a look at, you know, I do have some of that data on what people are eating when they were kids versus adults. And um, you can use similar techniques to look at um, migration as well. So there's, there's some big, big stuff coming out soon um, about who was local, who was a migrant in this, in this time period as well. So watch this space. Uh, yeah. Fascinating. Any, any <laughs> hypotheses on the childhood diet? Was it different from adults? Well, uh, some of it was, yeah. Right. So um, basically what some of it's tied to is um, if someone has maybe moved and migrated to a place, so there seems to be very different childhood diets. And then suddenly when you're in England, in these communities, and you're starting to farm alongside everybody else, your diet gets more and more similar and sort of acculturated is kind of the term we use. You become part of that community. So it's telling me a really nice story about people coming together, eating together, um, and having had a different diet from living somewhere else. Um, yeah. Sam Leggett, I look forward to seeing uh, the next chapter in this in this uh, story about uh, a, a history that maybe we had misinterpreted for quite a long time. Brilliant. Thanks so much.